Thanks to each of you for being here tonight at Community. I'm so glad to see you. Let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm given to understand that uh, the hymn that we just sang, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, was Harry Ironside's favorite hymn. Now, he didn't tell me that. But it's an interesting note. It's always sort of interesting to figure out favorite verses that people have and also favorite hymns because I think they provide little insights along the way. But there's something interesting that you can maybe, maybe go back to a little bit later. Let's read from 1 Timothy chapter 6 tonight. I'm starting in verse 11. going to read down through verse number 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold on eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will show or display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone hath immortality, who dwells in light unapproachable, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to whom be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your presence with us here through this day. And Lord, we just would look to you tonight that you would watch over us, especially as we come to the house of God. So many times at this midweek uh, time, especially uh, in, in need of refreshment, sometimes knocked back just a little bit, uh, weight, weighted down and burdened with the cares of this life and the problems that we've already encountered in this week. And yet, Lord, we thank you that uh, in you we can find rest and uh, also that your word is profitable and, and nourishes and refreshes our soul. I pray that you will help me tonight, Lord, to speak forth the things that become sound doctrine. I pray, Lord, that also the things that we talk about tonight would be refreshing and helpful and encouraging to us, that you would suit a blessing for each one who's here. I pray now, Lord, that you would cleanse me of sin. I pray that you would just give me a fresh sense of the presence of your spirit and the ability to be able to handle your word accurately, devotionally, practically, and warmly tonight for these things I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I'd like to talk to you a little bit tonight about the subject of godliness in an ungodly world. Godliness in an ungodly world. Some months ago, I was taking my annual voyage, although I'm sure I visit more than once, but through the pastoral epistles, my Bible reading was taking me through the pastoral epistles, is what I mean to say. And I was particularly attracted to verse number 11 in our text tonight. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. I think there are essentially two reasons for this. The first is that there's a little expression here at the very outset of this verse. It takes English four words to try to bring out the significance of this, but in the original it's really only two. It simply means, but you. But what's involved in that really speaks volumes because it implies a distinctiveness, it implies a contrast, and it implies being different. 
There's something else that's really interesting about this little phrase. You see, English needs four words to try to bring out that comparison, but as for you. There's always a comparison with something else around. In this particular case, if you go back and look in the verse before, you'll actually find what Paul wants Timothy to be different from, and that is the sum in verse number 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, piercing them through selves with many pangs. Some, some go after worldliness, but two, but as for you, Timothy, here's what I request of you. Here's what I require of you. Now, there's something else about this I started to say a moment ago. You will find this particular expression five times in the pastoral epistles. So this is really getting interesting to me now because Paul's writing to these two men who are his protégés, Timothy particularly, and also to Titus. He's writing to young ministers. He's writing to people that he's given spiritual charge to. So in that sense, there's a particular reason I have interest in this, but there's a broader sense in which really we should all have an interest in this tonight because it talks about being godly. It talks about being different. It talks about the standard that you and I need to uphold in spite of what's going on around us. And so that's what's implied in this. And I, I wish I had time to introduce you to the other occasions. There's actually a sixth that has just one slight word difference in it, but it basically has the same force. And if you go through the pastoral epistles and list those out, you've got yourself the basis of a good series. That'll have to be for another time. I just don't have time for it here tonight, but that's there. Right away then, something else comes up, and this is how Paul describes Timothy. He says, but as for you, O man of God, do you ever think about what it would be like to be Timothy and have Paul say that to you? To have the person who is the men mentor, to have the person who is the man of God par excellence, if anyone is, refer to you. But as for you, O man of God, I have to think that that was tremendously gratifying to him, but at the same time also very humbling for Paul to refer to him in that way. You know this term, perhaps maybe more than you think, because you find this term often in the Old Testament. It occurs of certain people and in certain places, almost rising to the sense of what you might call a technical term. For someone who belongs to God, for someone who represents God, and for someone who is like God. O oh, man of God, Moses, the man of God. Moses is referred to as the man of God. Samuel, the man of God, he's referred to that way. David, the man of God, he's referred to that way. And of particular interest is you will find a, a, a nestling of many of these occurrences in the story in the books of Kings concerning Elisha and Elijah. Constantly these men are referred to as man of God, man of God, man of God. Now, put what I've given you so far together, and what you have is something that really has something to do with what we're talking about here tonight. Paul wants Timothy to be different. There's this implied contrast. And in this particular instance, he doesn't want Timothy to be chasing the materialism that characterizes the people of this world, but instead to pursue other things. And he calls him a man of God. So hence the idea of godliness in an ungodly world. There are three steps that are involved in this. I don't know that Paul set out in these verses to write out a, to write out a treatise. The lists that he gives in two places, I don't think they're necessarily meant to be exhaustive. 
but it really is interesting to see what Paul lays out as a portrait, as a picture of a man of God for Timothy. The first of these we can find right in the text. It's right away. It jumps out right away. It says, but as for you, O man of God, flee. And you say, well, I'm not in the habit of fleeing from anything. Well, you've got to remember we're talking in spiritual terms here. And there are some things, in fact, practically put, I, I like for you to consider it this way, practically put, what Paul is telling Timothy is what the world runs to. The godly man and the godly woman runs from. That, of course, as I've already pointed out, the, the particular context of this occurrence is verse number 10. You have a whole long section here about riches and the dangers of pursuing riches. Let's just call it the things of this world, or we could call it materialism. Look again at verse uh, number 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many fat pangs. If you think about it, not only is materialism somewhat antithetical to the whole idea of contentment, which is a Christian value. Look back up in verse number six for a moment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So for us to be living a godly life in an ungodly world, it, our, our lives are going to be characterized, or at least we should be striving for contentment, not chasing after the things of this world, not chasing after material things, not caught up with the allure of material things. And so there is that. But also if we think about what the Lord Jesus had to say about this, that no man can serve two masters. For either he will hold to the one, uh, either he will love the one and despise the other, or else he'll hold to the one. You know how it goes. Jesus is saying no man can serve God and mammon. So here you've got two competing things here because on the one hand, Seeking after materialism and the things of this world is kind of the opposite of the Christian value of contentment. But at the same point, not only is that true, but it, it sort of indicates that we've thrown in the towel. It sort of indicates that we've surrendered in the contest that we're involved in, which is a contest of faith. And so he says to him, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. But, you know, we can talk about materialism, and we, we could say a lot about it. In fact, I'm, I'm purposely have, trying to avoid these verses because there's so much in them that you can talk about. Paul really gives some extended material about this whole subject here in these verses. But the idea of the fact that there are certain things that you and I need to find ourselves running away from, the very things that so often the world is running towards, this is almost something of, a, concur, of, a, of a, a theme that goes on many times in Paul's writings. It's not just riches. It's not just materialism. Were we to take the time and turn over a couple of pages to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he says, flee also youthful lusts. So many are the hazards of youthful passions. And Paul says you need to be going in the opposite direction. You'll never be, a, you'll never be known for godliness if you're going in this direction. You have to go in the opposite direction completely. 
Then you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he gets more specific about it, and he says, flee sexual immorality, or as the King James renders it, flee fornication. That's something else. That's just antithetical to godliness. You can't be living that way and be a godly person, but yet it characterizes the world around us. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, you've got to stay away from that. And then you turn over to chapter 10 and verse 14 in the book, and he says, flee idolatry. Any of those things are all things we could talk about tonight, but you kind of get the idea. The idea is that there are certain things we've got to keep our distance from, and we've got to keep on keeping our distance from. Godliness demands that we do that. I really like the way one person puts it when he says, you know, there, if you really stop and think about this, there's no distance at which you're safe. But so often the case is, is that we kind of make peace with these things and we get just far enough away, enough away from them to think that we're safe. And then the first thing you know, these things are so powerful and these things are so subtle. This is part of what Paul is talking about with the allure of riches when he says in verse 10 again, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You don't realize the power it has to pull you in. And once it begins to pull you in, it's like telling a lie. You know, all of a sudden you find yourself trapped by that, and then you've got to tell another lie. Well, you start getting involved in materialism, and the first thing you know, you're hedging here. You're doing something there. And you've got all kinds of things compromised in your life. Paul says you can't do that, and there's really no distance at which you can compromise with this. You really can't find a safe distance from sexual immorality. All throughout life, we have to constantly, and this is why Paul gives us this command in the present tense, which is the idea of keep on fleeing, just keep on going. That's the stance that we have to have as Christians, and we, we, we can never be allured by the fact that, well, I think I'm okay. Because the flesh is the flesh, and it never changes. You know, I, I keep saying to myself over and over again what Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And the flesh is never going to be any different. It's always going to be fallen. It's always going to be depraved. It's always going to be weak. And even as seasoned Christians, we have to be on guard. Paul says part of this is knowing what you've got to keep on keeping yourself away from. Well, let's move to the second thing because, and we'll call this follow. Notice verse 11 also has this, but... Um, our version translates it differently. It's the word pursue, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And then it says pursue, and this is the idea of to follow. Um, I like this for the homiletical value of it because it's, it's a little easier to remember the outline that way. Uh, if you have another word that starts with F, and it's, it's not forced because that's actually how the King James Version translates it. In fact, when you uh, look at another verse, let me give you this verse right now. Um, this is oftentimes the way the King James will see fit to render this, but I'll tell you a little bit more about this word in a minute. But this is Philippians 3.12. It says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. Yeah, that's kind of the mindset that we were just talking about that. About. But he says, I follow after. Well, it's, it's, it's really the word that's translated here, pursue. Now, just so you get some idea of the color and the strength that's involved in this word that's translated pursue, it's the regular word, in the original language for to persecute. So can you imagine, for example, plugging this into a known instance? Can you think about the Apostle Paul for a minute, back in his days before he became a believer, and he was persecuting Christians? Can you imagine Paul 
chasing down Christians? In other words, here's something that you're so involved with that you're pursuing it. It's, a, it's, it's something that's a passion and you're after it. And so if we wanted to put that in a more practical way, on, this is kind of the positive side now, the negative side being to flee, that which you have to keep on keeping yourself away from. But in this particular instance, the positive side is what the world runs from, the godly man or woman runs to. And then Paul gives us a list of six things. Like I said, I don't know that this is necessarily meant to be complete, but it is interesting the things that he names here. And having the positive as a balance to the negative is extremely important to understand because, see, folks, you and I have to know the Christian life was never intended to be a vacuum. Godliness isn't achieved by just ridding yourself of things. That's a start. Godliness is achieved when you stay away from some things and you're pursuing other things. When you rid yourself of the things that are harmful to your walk with God and you're pursuing the things that are beneficial to your walk with God and build you up. That's the true picture that we need to always, the balanced picture that we need to always maintain. So what, what things does Paul have here? Well, there's a list of six things and we'll just have to sort of look at them and maybe say a sentence or two about each one because we just don't have time to develop them. But the first one is righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, in its simplest essence, it's the idea of conformity to a standard. But if we were just going to make this intensely practical tonight, a person who's known for godliness is a person who's known for doing right. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we known for doing right? And that's an important concept, it really is. What does God say about something? Not what the world says about it. The conformity to the standard, is, it's God's standard. So as Christians, we're constantly looking for what it is that describes doing right based on what God says is right, not what the world around us says is right. Boy, that'll trip you up in a big hurry, won't it? Well, let's look at the second thing, godliness. This is a word that means devotion or piety. And piety is a good word. Sometimes pious to us has a bit of a, yeah, we sort of work that over with a negative connotation. It really shouldn't be that way. We should be known for being devoted people. And so a person who's striving after godliness is a person who's known for a desire to be like God or a person who's known for godliness. There's a third thing, and that's faith. So a godly person is someone who's known for trusting God. Do you find that to be an easy thing? I don't. I think that's, that's sometimes a very difficult thing for us. But it's not like we're left alone without things to do to help us in this respect. You know, the, the disciples said to Jesus on one occasion, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> I always cheer up when I read that. I feel good every time I read that. It makes me feel better. The disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. He gave them something to do, and they took one look at that and said, oh, boy, we're going to need a lot of faith. But before we start crying about, well, you know, some people have faith, but I just don't have a lot of faith. Before we start going down that road, let me ask you a question. What, what's your relationship to the Word of God? Because Romans 10, 17 says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So there are positive things. There are definite things that we can do to grow our faith. Not, it's not self-effort. It's just the spiritual tools that God has provided. And I'll warrant you that the more time you spend with this book, the easier you'll find it to be strong in your faith. That's a really important thing to know. Well, 
a godly person will be also known for loving God and his people. And we know that Jesus spoke about the latter in particular when he said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Steadfastness. Um, so again, a word that has a lot of background to it. It literally means in the original to remain under. And uh, remain under what? Well, difficulties and trials. See, this, this word is different than the word that's translated long-suffering. Long-suffering has to do with people. This word has to do with things. Well, we, we, we find all kinds of things that confront us day in and day out. Trials, all kinds of things that we're confronted with. But a godly person is known for persevering. A godly person isn't a quitter. But you don't, again, that does not come naturally to us. We tend to want to bug out when the going gets rough. My dad was a businessman after he was a Marine, but he, he would come up with these little things sometimes when he'd have these, these, uh, these um, he wanted to lead the, the, his, his division in the company to particular goals. And I'm sure this wasn't original with him, but I can always remember him saying this. He'd say, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And we're not so much like that, you know, we're awfully weak. But a Christian who's pursuing godliness is a person who will be characterized by a desire not to quit, to persevere, to stay with the stuff. And finally, gentleness. This is another very interesting word because it combines the word for meekness with a verb that means to suffer. There's a lot of misunderstanding about meekness because a lot of people think that meekness is weakness, and meekness is not weakness. Especially when you realize the meekest man was Moses. We were told this in the Old Testament. Well, Moses wasn't weak. Jesus was known for meekness, but Jesus wasn't weak. Meekness has to do with strength under control. But this particular word's a compound of the word for meekness, and it combines it with the verb to suffer. So it almost has a tinge of what do you do under provocation and how do you handle it? And many times we don't do so well. You know, I really failed my own test here a couple of weeks ago. I was out on my morning walk, and I know a particular place in this particular neighborhood I walk through, there's a dog there. The dog's not usually out, so I'm usually okay. But if that dog's out, that dog has run out at me several times. I don't like that a whole lot. Now, some of them, they run out, and you can kind of tell if you turn around and square off with them and, and, you know, take a stiff tone with them, they back right off. Others, it's a different proposition. This one gets right up in your face. I mean, this one gets way inside my comfort zone, and all I'm looking at is white teeth, like that. Well, a couple weeks ago, I was out on my walk, and unfortunately, that dog was out in the yard. He came running out there. I didn't know it was a he or she, but I've since been told his name is Roscoe. And he comes running out there, teeth barred, and this lady is in the yard, and, and I, I saw her there, and she, she said, Oh, he won't bite! Well, I didn't do so well. The, the first thing I said really wasn't all that bad. My, my tone was maybe a little stiff, but I said, Ma'am, would you call that dog back? And then she repeated again about how this dog wouldn't bite, and I just looked at her, and I said, Yeah, right. Wasn't my best moment. I got about 10 paces on down the road past that, and I thought, you know, you didn't handle that so well. Gentleness. And we won't take time for Titus chapter 3, verse 2. Now, here's the last thing, because we have to hasten, but did you catch the idea that what we're talking about here is a bit of a struggle? That it's a contest? 
And Paul even says, fight the good fight of the faith. So that's the realm of our contest. It's spiritual. It's in the realm of faith. This, this expression, fight the good fight of the faith, doesn't have anything to do with the doctrine that we hold, although that's also important. Even though the definite article is with the faith here, it's really not dealing with that. It's telling us the realm in which our conflict is. See, a man of God, a woman of God, is supposed to be a person of faith. And so our conflict is in that realm, but it is a conflict. And so Paul uses a word that really brings this out because... He, he talks about fight the good fight, but what he's, what he's really talking about is a contest. So th this is kind of the acknowledgement that this is a struggle, that, that what the world, and again, to put this practically, what the world accommodates, the godly man or woman must often resist. And that's a struggle sometimes. So Paul uses agonize the good agony, and and. These are the words directly from English as they are represented in the original. Agonizomai in Greek is where we get our English word agonize. And the fight is the agon, the contest. Well, I don't know whether Paul went to any games or not, but I do know that Paul likes sports imagery. And you find it all through his writings. And say, for example, like in 1 Corinthians 9, what he's talking about there is clear athletic type imagery uh, if any man strive for the masteries, he's not, he's not crowned unless he strive lawfully. He says this in another place. This, these are all imagery from athletic contests. So if you think of an athletic contest, this is what you're up at. You're pitted against something. You're striving for something, but you're also pitted against something. And so it's a contest. And once again, um, we're sort of pressed for time here, but uh, he fleshes this out this lifelong struggle that you and I, this contest, that's a lifelong contest that you and I find ourselves in for being a godly man or a godly woman in an ungodly world, he mentions six things, and I've got to go pretty quickly with this, but first of all, there's a challenge. Look here in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. See this phrase, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So did you ever read that and, and just what in the world's he talking about? Take hold, lay hold, I think the King James says, lay hold, it says here, of the eternal life. He's not talking about salvation. You can't save yourself and you can't grasp eternal life. And the verb tense here makes that plain anyway because he says, to which you were called. So that's reflecting back on when Paul or Timothy became a Christian. No, he's talking about something else. And it's the idea of seizing something, fully grasping something, fully appropriating something. And I have to tell you, that's, I'm sure that you feel a weakness in this, but I know I do. Um, I could give you any number of illustrations of this, but I'll tell you one that's just this week. Uh, for those of you who, who have iPhones or for, who are uh, Apple fans, so iOS 15 was just released this week. So if you haven't upgraded on your phone yet, you, you're like my wife, you'll put that off until that little red one appears on your settings uh, emblem. And, and then you'll still look at that for a while and, until it, it finally bugs you to death. And then you'll punch on there, oh yeah, I need to upgrade. My point is this, every time I look at my phone, I think to myself, you know, that thing will do more things than I can even begin to count. And then and the new, the new iOS system comes up, which is their mobile operating system, comes out like it, it did this week. I think to myself, you know, it's about like Logos on my computer. 
I've used Logos for years. That's Bible study software. I mean, for years and years and years. I mean, that would that's constant practice. I'd go into to my office to start working on a message, and I'd open Logos and get all my stuff situated. But you know, I, I'm really conscious of something. You know, I've never mastered Logos. That thing will do more things than I can begin to imagine, just like that iPhone will do more things than I can imagine. I haven't fully appropriated what's there. And the Christian life is that way, and this is what Paul is saying to him. You've got to, to, to work at this. You've got to, that's a challenge. Second thing is, um, there's a motivation. See, he goes on and he says this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, and then he goes on to mention the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you know, if the angels desire to look into certain things, and Paul tells us to be aware of the angels, how much more so that God is constantly supervising our lives. God's constantly aware of what we're doing. And, but not in a detached way. It's not, it's not as if God just knows what's going on and doesn't care, because then the next one comes into play. There's an encouragement. When it says, when it mentions the Lord Jesus, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Because, see, God also sustains us. This is the force of this, the idea that God, God isn't just a casual bystander somewhere who doesn't really care. God is someone who provides what we need. He sustains life. He's a provider. So we can count on God providing the grace without which we will never succeed in this contest that he's talking about here. And then it says, there are, then there is an inspiration. And that's the Lord Jesus, because before Pontius Pilate, he testified the good confession. You remember when Pilate asked him, are you a king then? Do you ever think about standing before Pilate and being asked if you're a king, what that involves? Especially if you're misunderstood. That involves a quick trip to the electric chair if you're in our day, because Rome just didn't tolerate any rivals. Caesar is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, not anybody else. But Jesus Christ stood, stood there steadfastly, explained that his kingdom was not of this world, explained that he was no threat to Pilate, but yes, he was a king. So if we, if we need inspiration, we, we can look to the Lord Jesus. There's a goal, and that's to keep the commandment without spot or reproach. It's, it's, the, it's what Paul's talking about here, the commandment that he's talking about here that he gives us. And finally, there's a reward. He says and mentions the appearing. Look at this. Um, Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, when you look there now, I take that as a reference to God, which God will display at the proper time. That word display, don't miss that because it's epiphany. His appearing is his epiphany, and this display is the idea of to show. Well, when God shows off the Lord Jesus at his coming in glory, there'll be a complete vindication. And that vindication will also confer to God's people as well. But there's more than that. When the Lord returns, we know that his reward is with him. Paul put it this way. We'll close with this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not to me only, but to also them, all them also that love his appearing. That's this word that's here, his appearing. And Jesus reminded us before the last chapter of the Bible closes, behold, I am coming soon. 
bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. Beloved, let's stay in this contest to be godly people in an ungodly world. Father, please bless these thoughts to our hearts tonight. Whatever was from you, I pray that you would bless. Whatever didn't need to be said, just let that be thrown aside and forgotten. But nourish us up and help us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.